Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody and welcome back to World Affairs, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Margot Tudor, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Henry Redwood about his new book, The Archival Politics of International Courts, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Henry is a lecturer in international relations at London South Bank University. So Henry, welcome to the interview. Hiya. Um, I wonder if we could just begin by you telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you grew up, how you became an academic, anything about how you were inspired to write the book. Yeah. um, Okay. so, yeah, as you said, I'm a lecturer in international relations at uh, London South Bank. But I guess my academic background isn't really from uh, a traditional IR. Uh, I didn't take a traditional IR route into these things. I did a history uh, undergrad and MA at University of Bristol and I, it was really there that um, my interest in the in the topic of, of archives and international courts took root. I took a, a module about the memory of, of genocide uh, focusing specifically on on the Holocaust, the third year module. I just became really interested by this question of of the types of stories that courts tell us and and the roles that these stories play in shaping collective memories of of past violence. But as I think is, I guess, the central theme in the book, how these end up shaping also understandings of communities, past, present and and future. Um, And so that was, I I, I did my... um, undergraduate dissertation and MA dissertations thinking about the these questions but I became I guess increasingly dissatisfied with the overt focus of that from at least from within the discipline of history on um, on the Holocaust and the, the post-World War II Holocaust trials and so I increasingly became more interested in in Rwanda um, as something that I think has had uh, an interesting lack of focus uh, in across all disciplines, really, given what what has happened, um, and and then I ended up visiting Rwanda and became increasingly more involved and interested in Rwanda today as well, and 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 through that pathway, uh, led me to do a PhD, uh, which uh, is the basis of my my PhD thesis is the basis of of the book, although. Uh, morphed considerably uh in the years since i finished that 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 phd um but yeah that's really the trajectory that i took to get to where i am now and uh so i did my phd in at king's college london in the in the war studies department which is i guess an explicitly hybrid interdisciplinary space so whilst i went in as a historian uh, there i worked with international lawyers and international relations experts and just over time found, I think, that the types of conversations that I was speaking to, whilst always in, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, were more rooted in some of the IR literature, which saw me migrate uh, more and more in, in that direction through a series of postdocs uh, and lectureships uh, 
to where I am now, which is a, a an IR lecturer at uh, London South Bank University. That's yeah. I mean, shout out to Tim Cole um, from yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> yeah. because um, I think I ended up taking that module too. Um, mm. and I completely agree. Amazing. You have that kind of Nuremberg. Yeah, I know Bristol alumni. We are everywhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, it, yeah, it's so it's so fascinating to hear about how that that really inspired you so early on, and then kind of taking that through and really working um, to drag, to think about how your dissertations could reframe the whole kind of way we think about international criminal courts and and law and memory. Because yeah, I agree with you. I think often there is that that focus on neuro or the shadow of Nuremberg in in a lot of this scholarship. And so I suppose once with this wonderful book, you you kind of reflect more on the silences in those archives as much as the, the contents of them. And you refer to those voices that are excluded or experiences that have been erased. And so how do you think that erasure effect in international criminal courts um, actually is kind of a reflection of power? And how are those societal hierarchies reproduced in those archi- in the archival process? What is that role of the archives? Uh, oh, that's such a good question, and <laughs> one that would probably take uh, a day to unpack in any with any adequacy. I mean, I, I think I'll say two things in response to that. One is silences are fundamentally important to the archive, and and reflect, I guess, the limits of the archivals and uh, the archives' imagination and the archivists' imagination. But. I mean, this emphasis on silence is something that has been like really hammered home in transitional justice literatures and and also some of the more historically situated readings of the Holocaust trials. People like Lawrence Douglas um, uh, from the from the history side of things. And I think that what silence is important, restrictions are important, what isn't recorded in the archive is really important. And I do address all of those things in the book. But I think we can only learn so much from the power and politics of the archive by just thinking about what's excluded. And that was, I guess, one of my main criticisms of lots of the transitional justice literature, which is that it continually re-emphasizes almost a truism that courts can't tell adequate stories of mass atrocity. And I think there is definitely issues with the way that courts tell um, their stories. But actually, if all we do is focus on exclusions, I think we miss understanding what's the, the huge amount of data that, and information that's within these archives. Uh, but also, we only get a partial insight into why that knowledge and information ex- exists as it does. So if we want to answer your second question, really, which is how does this link to power relations within society, I think we have to understand this interrelationship between inclusion and and exclusion rather than just focus on what's not there. Um, I mean, yeah, that said, uh, I think especially in chapter six, when I do look at uh, these questions of uh, more explicitly of what type of community is produced, I think what becomes very apparent is whilst ultimately this is unsurprisingly given the era which the court functioned, uh, a site that reproduces a liberal understanding of, of community, that what's interesting is what is going on underneath these liberal claims. And that's exactly when we see these 
often violent orderings of society in relation to the international, the local, the exclusion of gender-based violence, the exclusion of the subaltern, all of these things end up producing, I guess, a much more worrying understanding of, of knowledge within the archive, but also then what types of communities are produced through these archives. And that's the fundamental thread through the book is thinking about this interrelationship between law, knowledge, governance and, and community and thinking about how that plays out and produces particular social orderings. Yeah, I mean, those th- those threads are really, really key to the book. And it, it's it's really clear how, yeah, that, that inclusion, the aspect, the inclusion of what we can tell from courts are as interesting as those exclusions as well. And yeah, it's sometimes in the literature, very, very clear to see that there is that that dominant perspective that excludes sometimes or sidelines um, what the court archives can actually tell us. And I suppose going back to what you were saying earlier about um, the choice of case study or your choice of your your primary case study being the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda or ICTR, um, and obviously the wealth of documentary and testimonial evidence that was produced in that trial, I think that relates to your point that you just made. And and so I suppose, why did you choose the ICTR? What what was it that drew it to you? I mean, you've, you mentioned briefly earlier that you'd, you'd visited, but what was it specifically about the ICTR's archival processes that inspired you? I think it was, I mean, it was uh, initially probably a little bit pragmatic, if I'm honest, which was, <laughs> which was, you know, we constantly are looking as at that time, I guess I was a historian for something new uh, and a new site. And it was, yeah, I, and I think there's a politics to the neglect of the ICTR and Rwanda, which is reflective more generally of relationships between global north and south. And if you compare to what's being written about the ICTY, the equivalent court for the former Yugoslavia and the Yugoslav wars more generally, there's a just a wealth of, <clears throat> a wealth of, information and work that's been done that hasn't been reflected in Rwanda so I started off a bit bit pragmatically but then realizing this imbalance I guess but became a bit more political and then the decision and then becoming more uh, I guess personally invested in Rwanda as uh, as a place as an amazing place with amazing people Um, that was sort of cemented the focus I guess uh, Picking the ICTR over other over other possibilities, and also I think there was again practically um, also about what types of arguments you can make. I, I often thought maybe I should have been writing about the ICC, but I think there's something about the ICTR in the position that it occupies in the evolution of international criminal justice at this. I think defining moment of thinking or rethinking what an international community might look like after the end of the Cold War and that the when I was writing and studying it it basically almost come to a close that it just provided I think a really rich research site as well to begin to to be asking these questions about the interrelationship between law knowledge and, and community yeah, definitely. And I mean, I suppose the 1990s is such an evocative moment for shifts within international criminal justice that it um, definitely speaks to a really important case study for thinking about almost those preliminary ideas or the formulation of a lot of those ideas that then led up to the creation of the ICC um, in this particularly kind of um, 
important moment or significant moment for um, international order, international criminal justice. Um, and I suppose in, in chapter four, you kind of discuss that a little bit more in the sense that you you talk about the indictment processes specifically and, and how those shaped the record keeping systems of the trial. And I suppose I'm quite interested in those granular processes of actually specifically like what the types of legal documentary evidence that was preserved. And I suppose, could you just take us through how the ICTR's indictments had this impact on court procedures and, and, and how it was preserved within the archive and what that did? Yeah, I mean, I guess the indictments, uh, I guess, for those that aren't uh, familiar to courts and how they operate, um, and again, to say I'm no, I'm no legal expert, right? I've I've spent a lot of time reading about law, but I'm not a lawyer, and I think that actually that perspective of coming at law without um, a legal background makes law seem really weird <laughs> in lots of respects. That I think is often concealed to lawyers who accept just the way it works as almost with it beyond questioning, uh, which uh, is on a on a tangent is I think fundamentally more of a. a that's an issue to do with why law can never quite adequately reform itself, I think. Um, but yeah, so the indictment is the instrument that charges defendants um, uh, against the crimes contained within the court statute. So in essence, when we're thinking about what stories are told and how they're limited, it's arguably along with the statute, although because it, 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 the statute influences the indictment, you could say that the indictment's the most important, shapes the stories that these trials will tell, because ultimately this sets out ahead of the trial what narratives the prosecution are going are gonna to tell throughout their case. And because of the way that these the legal systems work in, the, in these contexts, that also means that the defence is, is limited in, in effect to responding to that indictment. So the indictment framework is really the main storytelling framework uh, that underpins every trial at the ICTR and continues to act in that way at the ICC. And I guess the indictments, you could tell the story of the ICTR and you could tell the story that I tell in the book through the indictments in, in lots of respects. So one of the things that I, I look at is how imaginings of justice and as as a consequence community shifts over time. So we what we see is this uh, evolution from a relatively broad, holistic, you might call it a rest, sort of weak restorative vision of justice in the early trials to a very narrow legalistic uh, understanding of the role of justice and the function of justice, a, a form of sort of a traditional form of retributive justice by the end of the ICTR's existence. And what does that mean for the indictments? Well, when we look at the early indictments, we see incredibly broad ranging charges. We see uh, this real emphasis on trying to tell a holistic account of the genocide and what happened in Rwanda. So this is both geographically covering uh, the violence that occurs across Rwanda at different times, covering different people. So we see musicians indicted, we see prime ministers uh, indicted, we see generals, clergymen, um, local businessmen. There's this really, this is real emphasis on, I think, telling this holistic, deep truth within within the indictments but they're also constructed in a way where witnesses end up playing uh, a much more integral role in shaping of the trials which is something we can maybe talk about later 
But what we see as the indictment, as indictment practices goes on, particularly after the UN tells the court to close down in 2003, is the shift towards these incredibly focused, narrow, um, narrow indictments that have uh, far fewer crimes contained within it, within them, far more specific in lots of respects, which has knock-on consequences for the witnesses. But we really see that by the end of the ICTR's existence, and this play, that that plays out uh, statistically as well. We see a statistical decline in the number of charges lodged in indictments. But by the end of the ICTR, we see this basically almost sole focus on efficiency and judgment outputs as the metrics of success. So we see this shift in the indictments from very broad, holistic, uh, almost restorative uh, emphasis of the indictments to this really narrow, much narrower vision of justice and, and the tribunal. Yeah, and I suppose as part a key part of that storytelling process or the indictment process is this this idea of constructing actors, which is obviously a big part of the middle of your book and and thinking about those those different binaries of kind of perpetrator versus victim and having those those formed within the court archives through these documents like indictments as you've talked about and you know when we think about the kinds of different arguments and characteristics that were reinforced in this process um, how do you think the archive kind of legitimized these arguments or these binaries for the record in as part of the quote official history uh i'm not sure i fully understand the the point about how it legitimizes i mean uh, so maybe we can take that separately after. But um, yeah, I mean, so when we look at how these these core archives function, um, yeah, you're 100% right that they construct this sort of Manichaean vision of the world where there we have the, the good and the bad. We have the perpetrators and we have the victims and we see very particular understandings of who are perpetrators and victims. And so I think that's one of the things that... <laughs> In essence, everything's political, right? All knowledge is political, and that's I, I open with a quote from Foucault in that respect that about about the relationship between knowledge and power. So even something that we take to be such an inherent given that perpetrators are bad and victims are good, when we look at the uh, what sort of power and knowledge and politics underpins that, we get some really interesting things in in, in the court records. So with the perpetrators, the active sort of the active figures within within the genocide, the victims are these passive, innocent figures, but that also becomes both incredibly gendered and framed within the court's very limited understanding of the genocide as an ethnic crime. Um, so in, in essence, we get, in that respect, we get this limited understanding of victims as being feminine subjects, uh, so predominantly women, children and, and the elderly. And these are emphasised as subjectivities to sort of prove the case that we're talking about meaningful victims and not potential perpetrators. Um, and over time, for lots of different reasons, but the, the ICTR ends up presenting this sort of incredibly neat and very problematic binary of perpetrators equals Hutus and Tutsis equals victims. Um to the point where we, we have a couple of moments where, um, which I cite in the book, where in essence the naming of a victim as a Tutsi is enough to evidence genocide or at least genocidal intent. Uh, and when we look at why the genocide 
actually took place and the the polit and and what underpinned it. Yes, the Tutsis were the majority of the victims of of the violence, but it was a political. I think it was fundamentally a political act, and one of the greatest, uh, one of the biggest symbols of that is that who was killed first. It was the Hutus that were opposed to Hutu power and the the genocide plan, um, and so I think that it produces this very blunt, uh, stunted understanding of violence, which can have really significant knock-on effects later on. And this is not something that's just a problem with courts. It's a, it's a problem with transitional justices, imaginings of perpetrator and victimhood more, more generally. But this has really significant consequences. It's perhaps when we think, if we think that women are passive agents and victims of violence, it's unsurprising they're in, not often included in peace negotiations. Uh, when we reproduce these really entrenched notions of victimhood, I mean, what is a, a sort of something that unifies almost all acts of genocide are claims to universal victimhoods, right? And so this reproduction of inherent victims versus inherent perpetrators, I think, is fundamentally the antithesis of any form of meaningful reconciliation um, and has, I think, long-term, potentially really significant uh, consequences. Um, yeah, definitely. I think that the idea that you're reproducing and entrenching that ethnic separatism through the court's kind of ideas, I think, yeah, that you can see clearly. I mean, we also understand that having or building a state on an idea or a nation on the idea of victimhood is inherently very, very politically dangerous. Um, and so kind of it, having this this book as a part of that conversation to kind of actually criticise that approach and try and examine what are those processes that actually allow for this dominant binary approach to perpetuate those ideas post-conflict is really important because I think sometimes it is just oh well those were the established that was the established narrative during the conflict and therefore we're just working off of what was established in the conflict you know it's a historical fact whereas actually what your work is doing is actually showing how that was a constructed process through these transitional justice spaces these international spaces as much as it was within the kind of national narratives from the RPF afterwards obviously um, and you were mentioning earlier about um, your section on witnesses, and I thought that was that was a really fascinating aspect about their kind of active participation in this constructive process, you know, contesting the idea that witnesses were passive or can be passive, I suppose, in, uh, aligning with your idea about this, the, the gendered aspect of victimhood, but also trying to think about which other groups are marginalised within court spaces. Um, and indeed, you kind of describe them more as co-constructors rather than as just witnesses that are passive to the entire court process. And so do you want, could you just expand a bit on, on why you wanted to include uh, an entire section on witnessing, witnesses and, and what their role was really in, in shaping the ICTR? Yeah, well, I think it's, uh, I think really it's about, that was about a response. Like As, as I said, I came to this from, partially being a historian, but also then becoming more interested in transitional justice stuff and just finding that this there'd been in both camps this near complete acceptance of courts tell bad stories. I mean, with some exceptions like Nigel Eltringham and Lawrence Douglas and Charles Meyer, like there are exceptions to that, but this understanding that these tell bad stories is an implicit part of both 
sets of literatures, even though they're really poorly and weirdly unconnected to each other. Um, and within that, there's this assumption that that means as well, or a symptom of this, is that witnesses are uh, courts of these sites of silence. Witnesses come and they tell these incredibly stunted legalistic accounts of violence and they basically walk into the courtroom tell what they're forced to tell and then leave uh, and they are these passive actors throughout this whole process uh, and that to me just always didn't ring true it felt too absolute um especially when we think about historical precedents like the eichmann trials mm. um but also when i started reading the transcripts from the trial, the three trials that I looked at, well, I, I looked at more, but I, I focused, zeroed in on, on three particular trials. When I looked at the first trial of Jean-Paul Akiezu, it was just really clear that this, this understanding of uh, witnesses as these passive actors in courts just didn't map onto what I was seeing. And that's actually not to say that other scholars are wrong. They were also looking at different courts, right? And they were looking at... Um, Lots of this isn't being done in relation to the ICTY or the Special Court of Sierra, Sierra Leone. So I think there's also a case that this, these things can be different in different, these power dynamics can be different in different places. But when we look at the ICTR, I think you see the witnesses play this really substantial role in shaping, at, in the early trials that is, play this role in shaping the nature of, uh, of the trials themselves. Again, it's not why I use the word co-constructed it's not unlimited it's still constrained by the statute by the prosecution's interests uh, by the rules of the court but especially in these early trials those rules are pretty fluid and and ever-changing and so we see the witnesses I guess able to get a greater stranglehold on on the trial to push it in different directions um, but again much like we see with indictment practice we see this power and ability of the witnesses to, to influence these the types of stories that tell diminish with time and ultimately uh, much like the sort of reductive vision of 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 trials is just pumping out outputs we always we end up with a much more an increasingly utilitarian vision of the witness at the ictr um, and i think that trajectory is important both for understanding the ictr but also because i think that this is something that we've continued to see at the icc as well um, so yeah i think that it was it was because it it's an important part of the story but also to try and add uh, a bit of nuance or a different perspective on what I thought witnesses actually do in these sites in, in comparison to what lots of the literature is saying on this. Yeah, definitely. And I think that idea that there, I think your book does add that nuance in the sense of there is more fluidity to power in these spaces than perhaps those fixed roles that a lot of critical work that has done before has kind of gone the opposite direction in the sense of, oh, okay, so then there's absolutely no agency from any witnesses or from even victims who are trying to participate within the court system rather than seeing it as this kind of space where there's limited room to manoeuvre. Of course, there are those constraints, but actually trying to amplify it and, and shed light on those spaces, those limited spaces where agency and and voice was was allowed or kind of amplified within that space. And I suppose that fluidity is interesting for when you talk a little bit later on about how justice 
and ideas of justice shift throughout that tribunal process. Um, you know, changing from the initial identified idea of what justice might be at the beginning or how it was promoted at the beginning, and then how once through the procedure it evolves. Um, and I was just interested in how you think those ideas of justice change and what kind of processes or voices affect the evolution of that concept. Yeah, so um, so I guess that's this, this builds on the last, well, two of the points that we've already been discussing, which is the shift in emphasis on the role of indictments and also the shifting role of the witnesses. And so what we see, as you say, is this like a, a shift towards a much more broad-based, holistic understanding of, of justice, a weak form of restorative justice, a much more narrower understanding of, of retributive justice. Um, and I think that, well, in the book, I argue that there are two two to three main factors that um, influence that that shift. Um, the first is uh, a settling of the law, in essence. And so if we, uh, lots of the criticism, I think, of the ICTR and the ICTY forgets what um, sort of an insane undertaking it was. Like these were the first international courts that have been created since Nuremberg, the first meaningful international courts in in the sense that Nuremberg was uh, a, a, a tribunal made up of the victors of World War II. So whilst internationally, it was also very limited in terms of who was doing the prosecuting. So these were international courts applying a body of law that hadn't, that had been almost dormant for, except for in scholarly work for 40 years. Um, and that's a huge undertaking, right? And, and I think we, we should temper the criticism of these courts with that sort of uh, that sort of acknowledgement. Um, but so what that means, in essence, when we're thinking about how the court functioned in the early years is that they were making sort of lots of it up as they were going along, which I think created this elasticity around what the court process was, what the sort of the, the legal rules were in terms of both substance, but also procedure. And that went hand in hand with uh, I guess opening up space where witnesses could play more of a role, where more expansive visions of justice uh, could take place. I think that's also mirrors the age that the, that we're talking about, right? Which which is the the post Cold War world and this like this hope that we could have for the first time a meaningful form of international com- uh, community underpinned by sort of a li- liberal cosmopolitanism, and I think that. You know, this is the era of the Truth Commission, and I think importantly, the first prosecutor for the ICTR and ICTY was Richard Golston, who had been fundamental to the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think imported lots of these think lots of this thinking into the courts. So I think the very way that these courts functioned early on uh, meant that the legal rules were such that they were flexible and were being. Um, not manipulated in uh, as in a, a, a victor's justice or show trial way, but flexible so that they could bend around the violence that they were addressing and take into consideration these broader sort of transitional justice claims and needs. But over time, that obvious novelty wears off and what the rules are, what the law is, I think becomes increasingly stabilised through the sort of repetitive citation of the law as it is. Um, And we see this both substantively, so legal rulings on what constitutes different parts of the statutes become 
becomes more regulated and more more fixed, but also procedurally. So uh, the way that indictment needs to be submitted, what needs to be contained in it, becomes much more formalized and predictable. And that has a, a, a knock-on effect in terms of how power is distributed within the court. So essentially away from witnesses, more towards legal action legal actors. And then the second uh, main force behind this is, I guess, the external political force and the the tribunal's relationship to other UN organs, particularly the Security Council. Um, And so in essence, in the early 2000s, well, really beginning in the late 90s, Security Council is becoming increasingly annoyed by the ICTR and ICTY. They're seen as costly, ineffective, they're not really doing very much. Um, and so they're ba- both courts are told to close down as quickly as possible, and both courts are told to create a completion strategy, which is uh, finalised at the ICTR in 2003. And this basically just means that the whole sort of modus operandi of the ICTR becomes about shifting their cases as as, as quickly as possible. Uh, and that with that naturally comes, I think, a dropping off of the other interests, the all actors, I think, except for the defence, I would argue, which is something I, I didn't really have space to elaborate on in the book, um, sort of get on board with this efficiency drive. Uh, and we just see that that becomes the way in which success is, is measured. And we can see this in, in later reports that are submitted from the ICTR to the UN Security Council, which sort of use these graphs and statistics to emphasise that they're cutting down the the the, the, the the length of trials, they're being quicker, they're being more efficient, um, and also in judicial rulings. So we have rulings which say you need to reduce your number of witnesses. We don't have the money or the time to be hearing witnesses needlessly. Um, and so we see this uh, this focus on justice comes at a cost, and I would say that that cost is the court's previous interest in broader themes of and broad interpretations of justice, mainly around uh, the world the role and position of witnesses and ideas of reconciliation and also around the types of stories that these courts uh, can tell. Yeah, definitely. And I think it, it leads really well into that that idea that the, the overwhelming bureaucracy or kind of real realism of pursuing a court, as you were saying earlier on, is how can the law reform itself or how can legal um, p- practitioners reform, seek reform within an institution that has such strict boundaries on on how practice works, how courts work and how systems are established and, and for the kind of very utilitarian purposes you mentioned earlier. And I suppose just kind of thinking about how that then shifts into your thinking about um, chapter, chapter six, thinking a little bit more about the illiberal undercurrents concealed within that liberal vision of community. It was such a fascinating chapter for me. I thought it was really interesting about how... Um, I mean, thinking about how broadly actually that application is, you know, that kind of illiberal um, uh, kind of toxicity that is concealed within um, liberal visions, just broadly within the international order and then obviously within the court archives themselves. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the function of the international archive in kind of perpetuating this particular liberal ideal. Um, whilst also kind of simultaneously constructing illiberal forms of community. Yeah, um, I think you're you're really right in saying that I don't th- think that this is anything unique to the ICTR. And I would 
has it that most i know that the work that you do is on um humanitarian interventions or some of the work that you do is on humanitarian interventions and i mean that's at, lots of these logics liberal logics are at the fundamental heart of 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 understandings of humanitarian intervention more broadly um so i guess it's in in essence like what does what, what what that chapter does is think through okay so it's almost a truism that the archive is underpinned by liberal um thinking and liberal ideas it's a it's a, it's a court of law for, for starters and it was produced at a time where that faith and optimism in the a liberal world view was like rampant if you like within the mm. international community um, but when we look at the principle, and so with that comes different principles so around responsibility, around e- equality and neutrality, around universalism, around all of these things that are essential to, to a liberal worldview that should be at the heart of these trials as well. But when we dig down into how they then actually operate in practice, we see these more concerning um, orderings and relationships between this liberal worldview and the types of uh, incredibly illiberal community that are being constructed. So whether or not that's the way that the emphasis on responsibility ends up concealing the role of international actors in the genocide in Rwanda, producing this sort of dichotomy between the international as the saviour and the local as this site of barbarism, which is a narrative that helped uh, the international community allied any responsibility for the genocide as it was taking place and never take adequate responsibility for what it did uh, during the genocide to facilitate it. Um, but more broadly, uh, what we see is this, I guess it's not, a, in many respects, this is also not surprising. It's a, in, I think some lawyers would argue that this is a, almost a truism again, which is that these courts of law aren't about eradicating violence from the international domain. They're about attributing responsibility in very particular ways that limit and curtail violence without saying that violence per se is bad. And Mm. the reason that this is a truism is because this is, in essence, humanitarian law is the the law of the military, law of militaries, which is something that Lewis Arbor, Arbor, one of the ICR prosecutors, makes very clear. Um, And so we have this, I guess, we see these as sites of progress about perpetuating or creating conditions of peace within the international community. But actually, when we look at what they do, they're about saying, yes, some forms of violence are bad, but in the process saying other forms of violence are legitimate. Uh, And then similarly, when we think about the notions of equality and neutrality, what we end up seeing as the trials play out is this incredibly gendered understanding of violence of actors of witnesses that um, means that despite so one of the tribunal's great success stories according to them and their advocates is its development of gender progressive jurisprudence but when we look at what goes on underneath that um, we see an incredibly worrying way in which systematically throughout the course of the tribunal these crimes are, are being ignored right so there's not a neutral worldview. It's not a neutral capturing of the data. It re- reflects the patriarchal world that we live in, and that's mirrored in in what knowledge is produced and what data is collected and what judgments are rendered. So this isn't also just about um, 
what stories are told, but it's about how different witnesses' credibility is is understood and, and interpreted. And I think what's important then is that these this production of the world of particular world views becomes reinforcing. So it's the world these these world views exist prior to the prosecutions themselves, but through the prosecutions they become they they're made real, right? And and when we think about what courts are supposed to be doing, prosecuting people for crimes that are committed um, these have real very overt and clear real world effects and similarly when we think about the these courts claims to universalism when we look under the surface it's a particular worldview that's continually propagated to the exclusion of of other ways of interpreting the world that we live in and uh, and violence and so that bit of the chapter looks at how despite giving paying lip service to being sort of malleable and addressing the cultural specificity of Rwanda that frequently uh, Rwanda uh, ways of knowing which may be specific to Rwanda but opposed to the way that the courts see how knowledge is produced are continually sidelined and ignored and when I went my last visit to the archive uh, in 2019 I think it was I found this booklet which was uh, that was given to witnesses prior to testifying that basically tells them how to behave and what to say and what to do mm-hmm. and also there was this really interesting sort of emotional blackmail of of witnesses as well saying basically if 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 you don't do it no one else will and without you like we'll never see peace um, and it just that book I think said everything about how the power relations between uh, and in the the ICTR and and Rwanda evolved with time, um, and this sort of sense that the, the tribunal knows best and Rwandans don't, Rwandans Rwandans don't, uh, and with that, an implicit forwarding of a Western Enlightenment logic and worldview at, at the de- to the detriment of post-colonial subaltern or subaltern ways of knowing and acting. God, that booklet sounds fascinating and um yeah a bit that's definitely some explicit emotional blackmail going on there I suppose it's it's also it's slightly terrifying in the sense of trying to put a responsibility on a witness in order to kind of go through obviously quite a traumatic process but then also having that responsibility of well if you feel afterwards that you you know if you've been unable to kind of confine or, or make your uh, testimony fit what we want it to be or what we kind of hope it will be yeah. then you will therefore be responsible for not any further violence or yeah that's uh yeah that's <laughs> what a terrifying finding in the archive but yeah um, it's, it's, so it says refusing to testify amounts to showing disregard for the law and for your country examine your conscience to find the answer ask yourself this what good would it really do to have the events of Rwanda happen again question mark no one but you has the answer to the restoration of trust among Rwandan people. I mean, it's just yeah, it's. God. I just remember reading that and just and like if it sort of if something captures the ICTR by its end, I feel that it's that's a bit yeah. a bit sim- symbolic of, of of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that kind of very very powerful idea of what what the court was there to do. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's really compelling. Well, we're almost out of time, but we have time for one more question. So what are you working on now? 
Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, so after I finished, so this was, uh, as we've established, a book in a long time in the making. I started it in my third year and uh, of university and it only came out in 2021. I don't want to do the maths to work out <laughs> just how long that is in the making. Um, so since uh, since I finished the PhD in the book, I've, I've sort of migrated towards thinking about alternative models and mechanisms and ways of thinking about post-conflict intervention um so whereas the ICR is this sort of very international elite top-down heavy way of uh of of thinking about post-conflict justice uh, and transition I've started doing uh a lot more work with artists and civil society actors to think about how different ways of approaching storytelling and the past can open up different visions of, of peace. So uh, I worked on a really uh, a really amazing large AHRC project called Art and Reconciliation, which looked at the relationship between art and reconciliation in the Western Balkans. And since then, uh, I've had a, a separate project which looked at um, participatory filmmaking with Bosnian youth activists in, in, in Bosnia. Um, and through that, I mean, yeah. So that the this uh, the nexus between the arts uh, and civil society and alternative visions of peace is something that I'm exploring uh, as one sort of core strand of my research. And then the other thing that I've been increasingly interested in and want to submit uh, a grant application for. So that that the arts and peace building stuff is stuff that's ongoing, and I've mm. got publications coming out uh, with the Journal of peace building and development and a couple of edited volumes i've also been doing work on uh, afghanistan of, of official war artists in afghanistan which is in critical studies and security um, and then the so that's the arts side of things and then i want to ask very similar questions to what i asked of the icr's archive about the british records office uh, mm-hmm. which was created uh, uh i think it's 18 uh, 1816s around that time um, and I th- these archives as other people like Pierre Nora have argued are really central to nation building and that I mean yeah. that's a key premise of the, the ICTR book as well but I want to think about what types of nation building we can see within these types of archives and thinking more, also exp- more explicitly about how these tie uh, with colonial archives abroad um, and how knowledge is exchanged between them. So I just found a really, I mean, it's just a census from 18, I think 1863. And it's just already the, the, the way that knowledge is produced from the centre about the periphery, I think is just, uh, is really interesting in tying images of the colonies to understandings of Britain um, at this key moment of modern nation building which is happening across Europe at this time I think there's just a lot of there's a lot of interesting questions to ask of that time and of that type of archive so yeah two two interconnected strands they they both sound fascinating yeah I think um I don't know if you've been in touch with any of the people in the humanitarian and conflict response institute at Manchester um, just about the arts project, because if not, I will put you in touch with some colleagues there yeah. who, who do very similar similar work. Uh, I, me and my friend Hannah went to speak there a couple of years ago about our work on Mark Neville. Roisin Reed oh, was, yeah. <laughs> um, 
was uh yeah someone that we've we've met at conferences and things who's lovely yeah, she was one of my phd work. supervisors oh, she was <laughs> oh, she's yeah she's in, she's great she's really 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 cool does really yeah, great work yeah oh it's fantastic well thank you so much for talking with me today i learned so much from your book and i really really enjoyed it and um i'm very much looking forward to seeing yeah your future publications thanks very much